The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. A life uncertain in England. She's in a vulnerable state. I guess that's why he, he chose to groom and, you know, radicalise me. If you were caught trying to escape, they would have killed you. If you haven't heard from me within one week, then just know that I didn't make it. Hello, you are listening to Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. It is me, Daisy. Welcome. This is a podcast all about extraordinary people and extraordinary stories. Here we will shine the spotlight on their journeys and hopefully learn something about ourselves and the way that we live our lives from their experiences too. Join me as we get to know our guest. Welcome to Proverbs. How are you doing? Now, in this episode, I get the opportunity to sit down and speak to the first British woman to be jailed for joining the Islamic State, Tarina Shaquille. She travelled to Syria with her young son in 2014 to join ISIS and hit headlines both nationally and internationally. She decided to flee in 2015 and arrived back in the UK where she served her prison sentence. She is now free and sharing her side of the story. Tarina, thank you so much for chatting to us today. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me today as well. I want to start off with just finding out a little bit about you. I want to know what life was like for you growing up. Where were you from? What did you get up to in your younger years? Okay, so I'm from a town called Burton-on-Trent. And growing up, I was just, you know, a, a normal girl, as it were. Really good at school, did really well. Um, I used to play netball. I was I went to drama school, things like that. In terms of growing up, my childhood was pretty pretty unsettled, as it were, due to you know decisions that family members made, and there was a lot of it was a really unsettled time. But through all of that, I was just you know a normal girl, did well at school, extra activities, and yeah, so we had a pretty normal life, as it were. And I guess it was around the age, was it 24 that things really sort of started to change for you and things started to fall apart? I know you have a son and I know you were just getting out of an abusive marriage, right? So my life had been unsettled for quite a while from when I got married. The marriage was, as you said, it was really abusive and I lived many years of unhappiness and just a really horrible, horrible, nasty time. When I was pregnant, I decided that I wasn't going to live like that anymore. So when my son was pretty young, there was a breakdown in the marriage at around 24 years old. But, you know, it wasn't an easy breakup of marriage. It wasn't easy. It was really hard on me. It was really difficult. It was a really difficult time in my life. So, yeah, I would say that's around the time that things really started to get pretty bad. And I guess once that separation had happened, this was the point in time where you found yourself on Facebook chatting with an extremist. How were 
the two of you connected? I mean, I, I've read about your story and obviously I'm, I've used Facebook, I've used social media, but I've never come across an extremist or I've never been in a situation where I've been connected with one. How did the two of you start talking? I was never allowed on Facebook. So I reactivated it again when the marriage had broken down. And, you know, there was a conflict in another part of the world um, that was going on around that time. So, you know, my neighbor said to me that there were a lot of marches and protests going on around the other conflict, nothing to do with Syria. And there was a really big one that took place in Birmingham where we lived and we, we had missed it. So she was like, look, my sister-in-law heard about it on Facebook, um, reactivate your Facebook, next time there's one, you'll know about it. So I reactivated my Facebook and I, I don't know how, but I came across a lot of profiles. Maybe it's because I was looking and researching about this conflict that was taking place in another part of the world. And I came across um, a lot of profiles where, you know, there was the black flag in the background, men with big beards dressed all in black. And there was this one profile that it was just everywhere. I was like, I don't know. So I, I sent a message to him. So it was me that sent the first message because I thought that he was in another part of the world, not Syria. And, and I was like, you know, are you okay? How are things going there? What's going on? And he was like, oh no, I'm not there. I'm in Syria fighting. And I didn't know about like the Islamic State or anything that was going on in Syria at that time. I had briefly become aware of like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, but nothing in depth. I didn't know that a whole country as it were had been established or you know, land had been taken over, you know, so I questioned him, I was like, well, what's going on in Syria? And he basically said, you know, we're fighting to liberate the Syrian people to free them from the um, tyrant Bashar al-Assad. And we've also established an, an Islamic state. So that obviously led to more questions and frequent talking. And I guess there were a lot of questions from my part, because it was something I didn't know about. And initially the conversation started about, you know, what's going on in Syria. And then it turned to, well, it's actually your duty to come and live here too. And the conversations then turned to, I guess him, I don't want to use the word educating, but like informing me and telling me, you know, grooming as it were, about how it's our duty to go and live there as Muslims. And yeah, that that is pretty much where it started from online talking to this particular individual. Why do you think you were the target? Why do you think that this person felt as though they were able to sort of win you round and get you over there? It wasn't until many years later that I found out that this particular individual was responsible for grooming a lot of young women. Wow. That, um, yeah, and that was quite shocking at the time. I think that was when um, I had done another thing. There was another documentary and, you know, like the producers, they research and... And one of the producers came to me and she was like, you do know that he's actually a lot of young women have ran away to Syria because of him. I mean, I can't really describe. I think shocked is a really it, it, it doesn't do it enough justice. I at that time was really isolated from my friends, family. I was going through a lot in my personal life. I had really just given up and kind of had enough. So I probably shared a bit too much with him about the breakdown of my marriage and things like that. So I guess that's where he probably seen a way in or, you know, she's going through a hard time. She's She already is isolated from her friends and family. She's at a place in life where she doesn't know where she's going. And I was in that position because of the breakdown of my marriage. So I guess he saw that as his opportunity, you know, her life uncertain in England. She's in a vulnerable state. So I guess that's why he he chose to groom and, you know, radicalise me. And when you decided to, I guess, move this conversation off of Facebook and actually 
go and book yourself and catch a flight. What would you say at that time was the purpose for you? What was your primary intention? Now, this this is something that will literally always stay with me because it, it, it's just such a twist of fate. So at the time when I was deciding to travel, whether to go or not, because it was never 100%, I, I was always in two minds, should I go, should I not go? But at that time, my ex-husband was in um, his own country. He had gone for... A holiday and he was initially meant to go for like six weeks but he never returned on his return date and even though we were not together like he's still the father of my child and I, I pretty much still did love him for a long time after we were divorced I, I still really did love him but I just couldn't be with him you know the date comes and he doesn't come back home and I remember asking his family you know when is he when is he coming home nobody seemed to know anything I asked him when are you coming home are you coming back to England he was like, no, he would just always say, no, why do you care? Why do you care? Anyway, um, I'll literally never forget it. I think it, it was a Sunday. I went to my house because I didn't used to live at my family house, but I was staying at my family house. I went to my house to just get a few bits. I had already booked the holiday to Turkey. Well, it was booked as a holiday. I had already booked my trip to Turkey. And I remember on the Sunday, I flew out on the Monday. I remember saying to him, you know, when are you coming back? Because I thought, you know, maybe he'll tell me, whatever. Still, he didn't say. He was like, look, carry on, move on with your life. I remember saying to him, but what about your son? We have a child together. And, and he was like, no, he'll grow to be a man. Don't worry about it. Just send him to my country, like where he's from, when he gets older. And the really sad thing in all of this is the reason I was asking him is because had he have said, right, I'm, I'm coming back in a week. I would not have traveled on to Syria. I would have just gone to Turkey, had my holiday and come home. And the extra sad thing is the fact that I think it was the Thursday that I actually crossed over the border into Syria. And that was the same day that he traveled back to the UK. So on the Sunday when I was messaging him, begging him to tell me when he was coming home, he knew when he was coming home. He just didn't want to. So, you know, that that's one of the things that will always stick with me. And we've had conversations since then. And I have told him about that. I've said, look, you know, did you not find it strange why I was asking you, when are you coming home? And he was like, no, I was just caught up in this thing that we were going through. And I actually said to him, had you have told me that you were actually coming home within days of me messaging you, I would never have gone. And he was like, look, I'm sorry. And but yeah, that that's something that will always literally stay with me because it's it's kind of like, you know what happens is meant to be but had he have said I would not have gone on to travel to Syria. You actually arrived in Turkey on I guess sort of a summer holiday and was it in Turkey you then decided at this point in time you're going to cross the border over to Syria and you made your plans from Turkey? How it works is there's not one particular contact that helps you cross over to the border it's always get to this place contact that person that person then gives you the contact of another person when you reach a particular place. So it's it's a chain of events that you don't have the one person that's going to take you through it. That's clearly for, I don't know, that that's a protective measure that they put in place for themselves. So I was in Turkey and I was always, it, it was never 100% that I was going to go. So I think by the Tuesday, I, I decided that I'd, I'd see how far I got. So I knew that once I was in Turkey, that I had to travel to Istanbul first. And then when I got there, contact the number that I had from England who would then give me another person's contact so I decided when I was in Turkey that I was going to you know follow these these steps as it were to see how far that I got and I thought 
I know it sounds really stupid and I do feel really stupid about this. I, I literally just thought I'll see how far I get. And I know how that sounds, but that was how I felt at the time. And that is literally what I did. And I thought to myself, if it's not meant to happen, something will happen along the way or I'll, I'll get sent back or I don't know, maybe someone won't answer the phone or, and I kind of just left it like that. I'll see how far I get. I'll see where fate takes me. So yeah, it was kind of always like, if I get to the next stage, then I'll see how far I get. So it, that, that, that's how it came about. So when you arrive at the border, where where were you taken? Did someone pick you up? How, how was this sort of an open operation? Would you, would you even say, Tarina, this was sort of easy to arrange? When I got to the southern part of Turkey, they took us to like a house where there were other people waiting from all countries to cross over into the border it was kind of like a holding house a safe house you know whatever you want to call it and I think I stayed there for about no more than two nights it will have been one night or something like that and then early in the morning they came to get us and they said get your things we're going so we left in I think there was about two or three cars and the guys were Russian that came to take us and they drove us maybe for like 40 minutes through like farmland, deserted land, basically. And then the car stopped at a certain point and they were like, run. So they showed us the direction to run in, but there were people dotted about all throughout the wasteland. So we'd get to one point and he'd say, right, go this way. Then you'd run for, I don't know, maybe two minutes. And then there'd be another guy there and he'd say, you need to go this way. Kind of like checkpoints as it were. And then when we reached the Syrian side, there was, like a truck that, that's got an open back on it, you know, where the people sit in, but there's no roof on it. There was a truck there waiting, maybe two or three, and we we were told to get on the truck and where we waited for everyone else to come, and then we were took onto another house. As far as was it easy to contact the people from place to place, it was so easy because they literally, you know, they never questioned you. You know, when I think about it now, that is, you would expect there to be, because I could have been anybody trying to get over into Syria. You know, I could have been a spy, I could have been anybody. But no questions were ever asked of you. You were just given the next person's number, ring us when you're here, ring us when you're there. And I guess it was as easy as, easy as that, really. Now, when you arrived, Serena, I know you, you messaged your family and you told them of your plans to stay in Syria. You said you'd cross the border. What was their response like? What, what message did you get back from them? So I initially messaged them first when I stayed the first night in Gaziantep. I basically said, because they were texting me saying, how's your holiday? How is everything? You're not supposed to tell anybody that what you're about to do. But I'm really close with my family. And I, I couldn't continue this conversation of, yes, I'm in, I'm in Turkey. It's a fantastic holiday. Like my heart wouldn't let me do that. So I messaged my dad and I said, look, I'm, I'm not coming back. I'm going to go over into Syria. This is when we're in the house. And he initially thought I was joking because they would never expect that of me, never. I didn't tell them anything. I didn't tell anybody anything. And, you know, ISIS, Syria, war, jihad, hijra, all of these things, like that's not who I am as a person. And that's not how anybody ever knew me. It was really shocking for him. So he thought I was joking. And, you know, he sent a message back saying, ha ha, very funny. Like, he just he just didn't like kind of accept it. I can't remember what the conversation carried on from there. But when I crossed over into Sirius, I you know I said, look, I'm here. I'm not coming home. And that was when they knew it was real. And as much as being shocked, because as I've just said, 
that's so not like me. And I have never expressed an interest in ISIS. So I never shared any of my views or thoughts with any of my friends or family. I kept all of that to myself. So they were, they were absolutely out of their minds. You know, like, where has this come from? You know, we didn't know that she was paying an interest in these things. We didn't know that it was her plan to ever do anything like this. So, you know, they were scared for me. They were shocked. All of these emotions were running around, were running within them. I can understand. I mean, just hearing you speak about this, Tarina, there are obviously, and I know you're, you're sitting here and saying there were so many red flags, even, you know, even when someone tells you to not contact your family or not say where you're going or not give any information about what you're about to join or who you've been speaking to. We can both sit here now and identify that being a huge red flag when you get over and you're told to run between locations there feels like there is sort of a level of secrecy I'm sure that looking back that probably didn't feel like it was aligning with the man you were initially speaking to who said that he was there looking to liberate Syrian people would you say that your I guess defense mechanisms were almost desensitized because you were in a, an abusive relationship before. And I guess you you aren't as aware of picking up on red flags if this is something you've experienced previously. Yeah, I mean, I've spoke about this with, with professionals and, and they've said, you know, because of the traumatic is the word that they use, the traumatic life that you've had from childhood all the way into like, into your marriage or whatever, you kind of don't see danger or you don't see danger for what it is. Mm -hmm. so at that time I, I was literally not I was out of my mind I clearly wasn't thinking straight I absolutely so that teamed with my natural inability to be as perceptive to danger you know um absolutely I guess I will have ignored all of the red flags and, and everything like that so soon after you contacted your family I know that you were all over the British press. Did you ever think that this story would be on every single newspaper in the UK, that everyone would be speaking about this? Believe it or not, absolutely no. The reason I came to know about me being on the newspaper is because my brother sent me a screenshot of one of the newspapers on WhatsApp and it was myself and they had written their story. And I remember being on the roof in like, um, in Syria, in another house that we were staying in. And I remember opening the message and thinking, and I know this sounds crazy, but this is what I was thinking. I remember thinking, why would they put me on the front page of one of the leading newspapers in the country? Like, is what I have done, not that bad, but like, it, it, is what I have done worthy of front page news? Like, is it, is it that much of a big thing, what I have done? And yeah, absolutely. It was for me at that time, not being in the right frame of mind. And I couldn't believe that, you know, I was on the front page of all of these papers and that that's me that they're writing about. And that's me that I'm on the front page of all of these papers. And, you, you know, it was really like to get my head around that. It was really, it was quite strange, really. And I remember saying to one of the other women that were there, I showed her, she was from France. I remember showing her and I was like, look, and she, she was as well. She was like, oh my God, like you, you're literally everywhere so it was really shocking and I guess that was kind of a moment where a moment of realization for me where I kind of like what have I what have I done kind of realization 
as well, really. I can't believe that you still managed to keep your phones. I mean, this is, I guess this is part of you sharing your experience. You're given a, a deeper insight. I, I can't believe you were allowed to keep your phones and still, I guess, sort of maintain contact. Was there ever any point that you were scared that you were going to get caught speaking to your family or that your phone would be searched? No. So before we travelled on into Raqqa, we were kept in, um, in Aleppo. There, we were allowed our phones. In Raqqa, we were not. They were taken off us and we didn't know where they were. There was another woman that would look after our phones. But when I was in Aleppo, which was in the first few days of being there, no one watched our phones. No one kind of, that interest was not there. And we were allowed to keep our phones. We were always encouraged not to speak to our families, always, regardless of being in Raqqa, in Aleppo, wherever. They would always say, you know, don't speak to your families, don't speak too much, don't say anything because they're going to, they're not going to like what you've done and they're, they're going to try and get you to go home, but they don't realise that this is the right thing that you've done. With time, they will realise that it's the right thing that you've done. But the best thing to do is not speak to your family. And a lot of girls that were, because there were maybe 50, 60 more girls in this house wow. with children, yeah, literally from all different countries. And Would you say most women there had children with them as well? Yeah, absolutely. In the, I was one of the only women that was not only... I was one of the only women that was not there as part of a family. That was one thing that really, I don't know if interesting is the word, but one thing that really stuck out to me. Yeah. A lot of people there were with sisters, were with cousins, had husbands there, had aunties there. They, they were as a family. I was probably one of the only people that was on my own that didn't have an auntie waiting for me, that wasn't with my sisters, that didn't have a husband that was going to come and collect me. And the women that were there sort of on their own or with a sister or with a parent or an auntie, were they there sort of housed in this accommodation to be married off to an ISIS fighter? So in Aleppo, we were separated. So the unmarried women would go on to Raqqa and the ones who were married or had family members there, their family members would come and get them and take them to their house or wherever they lived. In Raqqa, I stayed in a house that again had, I don't know, 40, 50 women. It was a, the house was massive where we were staying. And yes, um, you were expected to go on and get married. That was pretty clear from as soon as you got there. And when I was speaking to people online, because I would speak to women that women that lived in Syria that had ran away, they would always say, no, you don't need to get married. You can come here, you can live a normal life. But when I got there, that was not the case. If you're not married, sole purpose is that they expect you to get married. And, you know, a lot, many girls that were in the house already had men that they wanted to marry, that they had been in contact with online before they ran away. And then other girls didn't have anybody. So it was kind of like you would give your name, it was just literally like a list. You give your name, what country you're from and what you're looking for in a man. I know it's it's absolutely crazy. And then they would go away and find... Almost like a matchmaker, I guess. Yeah. And then they would go away, have a meeting and, you know, they, they would put pressure on the girls to get married. Absolutely. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. What was that protocol like? Did the women meet these ISIS fighters before? Did they Were they allowed to sort of get to know each other or was it sort of ma married at first sight? So the process is... That they would come back to you once you've given your list your checklist and they'd say right we've got a brother from Canada wherever um he wants to have a meeting with you the girl would go away for the meeting the meeting would take place 
with another ISIS fighter and his wife. They would they were generally in the same they were in the same room, but they would have their backs turned to you. So it's you and your proposed husband sitting opposite you. You would speak for like two minutes or three minutes after the ISIS fighter that's arranged this meeting will turn around and be like, right, okay, finished. And you'd go away. And then the woman who's in charge of the house would then go around to the women that had had a meeting that day. You were kind of given maybe an hour or two or whatever to think about it. And then they would come around and say, look, what's your answer? Because we need to give your answer. And then it was yes, no. The girls that said no, because I, I did go for a meeting. And when I came back, I said no. But you can't really say no, if that makes sense. Yeah. You can say no, but then it's always like, well, why? Mm. Or he's a good man or you know things like that so that's the process of how girls went to meet their proposed husbands when was it what was the was there a, a pinpoint moment for you where you realized what you were promised online wasn't the reality that you were living in and you had to get out of here the first thing that made me really question it is because it was always sold as we're a, this is a peaceful place. I know it's a war-torn country, but in terms of like how people are with each other, yeah. you know, we're good with each other. Everybody here is Muslim. We are, you know, we're the brotherhood. Everybody is kind to each other. Everybody loves each other. But when I got to the first house in Aleppo, if you could imagine, there's like 60 plus women living here together. Everybody was getting on each other's nerves. And I remember a lot of things took place like a lot of arguments a, a few fights happened and I remember that was the first time that I actually thought to myself you know what is Islamic about this that's taking place here because we as Muslims are supposed to be kind people regardless of whether somebody's another Muslim or not we, we're supposed to love everybody you know you are supposed to lead by example by your manners but you know we're here as Muslims together and people are fighting over tomatoes people are stealing each other's clothes like and that was literally the first time where I did question, you know, what, what's, what's Islamic about this place? What, this, there's more, in Arabic, we use the word fitna, and fitna means like temptation or like a pro something that provokes something. And I, was, I remember thinking that there's more fitna in this place here than, than, our, than my life in England, really. Like, I'm not gonna fight with my sister over a tomato. I'm not gonna fight with my friend or she's not gonna steal my clothes, so yeah definitely what was said online and as I carried on and I seen how people acted with each other and how ISIS fighters would fight each other and so many things of, that went on in Syria that I witnessed in these houses made me think and realize there's nothing Islamic about this. Did you notice that any of the other women that you were with were noticing the same things? Did you speak about that within, with any of the other women? So most of the women, as you can imagine, that were there, loved it. It was the best decision they had ever made. They were pro, they loved it. Nothing you could ever say to them. And I, I, I didn't really, because you, yeah. you know, we're all watched and you, you can't speak out of line and because that's reported. And if you do, the consequences are not nice. You know? So most, most of the women there loved it. Best decision they'd ever made. But when I was in Raqqa, there was, um, because we became like quite good friends with each other, you girls together, no one's, you're not allowed out of the house. So we spent all day with each other. So we formed close bond, bonds with each other. There was this one particular girl that I met in Aleppo. She was not married. So she came to Raqqa with us and I stayed with her the whole time. She was from Qatar, but she spoke English. So we got along really well. 
and she was a blogger before she ran away to um, Syria. And I remember one night I would, cause I would wake up, I couldn't sleep, I'd go to the toilet and I'd see her with two other girls, like just sitting and whispering. The first night I walked past, I just said, you know, are you okay? Went back. The second night, the same girls are sat in exactly the same place whispering and they would always go quiet when I walked past. So unlike the second or third night, I kind of just inv invited myself to stay. So I sat there next to them and I was like, look, what's going on? Can't you sleep? And she was like, um, Britannia, that, that was my name. They're like, um, Britannia, don't like, we don't want to be here anymore. Like we hate it here and we're planning um, to escape. Okay. And I was supposed, I know this, I was supposed to escape with them like mm. the day after, but they didn't have, they didn't have a plan. They were going to sleep rough. They were going to, they kind of knew of somebody here. The plan, it was so flimsy. Mm. So when they ran away, I ended up being their cover kind of thing. You know, when everyone was looking for them, I was like, oh, you know, they were in the kitchen cooking. But that was the first time I was supposed to escape. I was supposed to run away with them. They mm. were the only girls that I spoke to about, I don't want to be here anymore. I hate it here. I, and that's because they shared it with me first. Mm. I would have been too nervous to share it with anybody else because I don't know what they're thinking. And, and you're getting quite big trouble for that really, because you're not allowed to leave. Continuing the conversation on Proverbs after this short break. Now, if you know me, you will know I am not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. For me, the pressure of starting something new in January has seen me fail over and over again. What I like to do instead is I like to give myself a little bit of time to settle into the year so I can actually figure out what goals I actually want to achieve. Now, one of my biggest goals this year is to be able to confidently speak in a new language. And this is something that I have been trialing and failing at and also working at for a really, really long time. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think about what you're wanting to achieve. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? Now, if you are like me and one of your goals is to learn a new language, you absolutely need to get Babbel. And I'm so excited to chat to you about this. Now, in just a few weeks of using Babbel, I have progressed my language skills in ways that I have never done before. And I've been using Babbel's 10-minute lessons, which are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. What I love the most about Babbel is that it's designed by real people for real conversations. And I think this is something where I've gone wrong before. I have been learning French on and off since I was nine years old. That is over a decade and a half now. Yet I still didn't feel confident in my communication. I was learning through textbooks, but I was actually lacking that human connection in my vocabulary. Babbel's courses have helped me to learn real life conversation skills, to speak confidently and clearly in a way that locals will understand as Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent too. It's enabled me to be able to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants, all without ever having to consult my language at whilst on vacation. Now, studies from Yale, Michigan State University and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. 
Now, I actually have a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, you can get up to 60% off of your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com forward slash proverbs. Now, you can get 60% off at babbel.com slash proverbs, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash proverbs. Rules and restrictions may apply. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I hugged her so hard and I was like, look, do you still want to run away? She was like, I can't do it anymore. I've had enough. If you were caught, they would have killed you. How did you plan your second attempt at escape and what would have happened? What were the stakes? What would have happened if, if you and your son were caught? So the second escape came about because there was, I had decided I didn't want to be here anymore. I was just literally, I didn't know how, I, I didn't know where I was. I'm not Syrian. I'm not from Raqqa. I don't know where anything is, but I know I don't want to be here anymore. There was a woman that I met in Aleppo that was, um, she was from the Caribbean and I, I was like quite, close to her and she would always say to me you know I don't know what I'm doing here I don't, I don't want to be here this was from Aleppo before we went on to Raqqa so we got separated she went wherever with her husband and I went to Raqqa I came across her again when I was staying in this house or whatever and just by chance literally just by chance I'd met her like she was in the park with her child and I recognized because we all had face covers but children didn't wear face covers and I seen her daughter and I was like, oh, my God, where's your mom? And she pointed to her mom. And I remember when I, the, one of the, like, I hugged her so hard and I was like, look, do you still want to run away? Because she, she had shared these things with me in Aleppo. She was like, I can't do it anymore. She was heavily pregnant as well. Okay. So I said, I've had enough. I need to go. I don't know how to go. She had her own house. She was like, look, my husband's going to be away fighting. Because I went to get internet for the woman who was in charge of the house. I didn't have nothing with me then. I couldn't have ran away then. But I knew that the woman was going to send me again to get internet because it, it had happened a few times. So there was a pattern happening. So I said, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. She said, OK, cool. My husband's away fighting whatever. I've got my own my own place. I'll come to the park every single day because she, she used to do that anyway, because like there's nothing else to really do. She said, I'll wait for you here. But anyway, I live and she kind of showed me vaguely. So three days later or two, the woman sent me to go and buy an internet code for her and the woman was in the park. So I, I ran with her to her house and I never, ever went back to the house where we were staying. It, it's a lot more in depth and it, it literally takes me so ages to so long to get into the actual escape and how I managed to run away. But to answer your question about what were the stakes, if you were caught trying to escape, they would have killed you, tortured you, put you in prison. Now, when the mother girls ran away that I was supposed to run away with the first time, when it became apparent that they had ran away, the woman that was in charge of the house was like, you know, she was furious. And, you know, we would all sit and eat together, loads of women together. And I will never forget her saying, she was like, anyway, they're stupid for trying to run away. She was shouting, obviously. They're stupid because we catch everybody that tries to run away it's okay because they've ruined their life now like she would say things like that so we always knew like 
you're not allowed to leave. Don't ever try to escape. And if you do, as well, there are other incidents that took place in the house where girls were not complying and literally a van of ISIS fighters would come, get the girl and you would never see her again. Nobody ever spoke about these girls again. I remember asking somebody, a girl from America, you know, where's so-and-so gone? She was like, just forget it. We're never going to see her again. So we knew what I knew, definitely what I was up against. And I know that you comply. And if you don't, you, you're playing with your life. And they would have killed me. They, they would have a hundred, they would have killed me. So you've crossed the border now and, and you're back into Turkey, Tarina. What was the journey back to the UK? Like, what were you expecting when you got back to the UK? Did you have contact with your parents? Did you say you were coming home? So when I crossed the border into Turkey, I, I literally just ran to the border after going through the whole journey. Such a miraculous thing. Just as I stepped over the border, there was a truck of um, Turkish soldiers that came and they seen me trying to cross over into Turkey. Now, initially, I think they thought I was Syrian because they were shooing me away and they were saying whatever in Turkish. But I said, no, I'm British, I'm English. And from them hearing me speak, it was apparent that I was not Syrian. So they helped me over because like the trench was, it had been raining, I couldn't really get over. So they pulled me over. From there, I went to, um, I went to hospital, went to the army barracks. And when I got to the army barracks was the first time that I messaged my mom because before I had escaped, I remember saying to my mom, I'm going to run away today in the morning. I don't know if I'm going to have internet. I don't know when I'm going to be able to get internet again. But, and I don't want to cry. And I remember saying to her, give it one week. If you haven't heard from me within one week, then just know that I didn't make it. Like, just know that I'm sorry. And I didn't make it. And I said to her, I won't leave it a week without sending you a message. I will find a way within a week to message you. But if it goes longer than that, then just know that I'm sorry and we're not here anymore. So as soon as I got to the army barracks, I was like, oh, my God, my mom, my mom, I need to let her know that I'm OK. She's going to be worried sick about me. She, she doesn't know where I am. She doesn't know. She, she doesn't know if I'm dead. So I said to the soldier, I said, look, I need to message my mom. And he was like, no, I'm not allowed to do it. And I was like, please, she's going to think I'm dead. So he let me message off his phone. He let me send a message to my mom. And I literally just said, mom, I'm safe. I made it. That's it. Because I didn't want her to be worried anymore. She'd already been through enough. And she doesn't she didn't know if I'm alive or if I'm okay. Then from there, we went to a deportation center where I stayed for like six weeks. And we were allowed to ring our families um, from their phone. Not all the time, but I had contact with my family whilst I was in deportation and, you know, my fam and my, my father flew over to Turkey. I came to see us in the deportation centre to see if we were okay. My ex-husband flew out to come and see us to see if we were okay. And yeah, um, I think it was like six weeks or something like that, five or six weeks that we stayed there. Then I was deported uh, back to England. I can't imagine what that first phone call must have been like between you and your mum. It must have been just the most heartbreaking, but also a call that was so full of relief as well. Because not only has she found out that you and your son have made it back across the border, it's also that moment where your family have realised you've you've turned your back on what you initially intended to do. That you know they and and the rest of the world were so horrified over, and now it is about 
rehabilitation? I mean, that first phone call was just, she was just, she went through a lot when I was away. My whole family did. I, I really put them through a lot. As you can understand when I did what I did. And that's something I, f- I feel really bad about that. You know, w- with that first conversation, it was, I remember I just said, I said, I'm so sorry, mom. I'm so sorry, but I'm okay now. I, and everything's going to be okay. I, I We're safe, but we're okay. Like this pain that you have in your heart, like it doesn't need to be there anymore because we're safe, we made it. And she was absolutely delighted. I don't know, like... <laughs> I, I don't know she was just like she just kept saying I love you I love you I love you I love you and that's all she kept saying she, did, she didn't really say anything other than like, I love you it's gonna be okay Tam that's what my family come, call me Tam it'll be okay you're gonna be okay don't worry everything's fine at least you're back like in Turkey to be honest with you my family knew that something wasn't right they didn't know about the groomer until after until I came to England so I think in their hearts, they always knew that I, that I would change my mind because they know me. They've raised me. They've lived with me. They know the girl that I am. They know they know me, you know. So I, I think they always knew in their heart. And, and I found out later that my mom, she just cried all day, every day when I was in Syria. And I found out later that I think my father said to her, like, why are you crying every day? <laughs> Silly question. And my mom was like, because we've not heard from her for four days. How do you know that she's not? How do you know that she's OK? And my dad, my dad would say, I know my daughter and I know she's coming home. And my mom was like, how can you be so calm? How can you know? And my dad was like, I know my daughter. She's not going to stay there forever. She'll come home. So, you know, like they knew me, they, they knew I would be back. They knew. And I don't know how, because I had done something that was so crazy and something so unexpected. But I guess that comes with family ties. And I guess that comes with the love that parents have for their kids. They always had the hope that I would be that I would be back and you know, I, I guess I proved them right. And I know when you got back into the UK, you were sentenced to, was it was it six years? But you did three, three in jail and three on parole. And then you also, you were put into a de-radicalisation programme as well, right? What what was that like for you? Did, did you feel like after serving time and, you know, after being so happy with coming home, did you feel like you still needed that? Did you surprise yourself with going through that and realizing maybe there were still things that you were experiencing from the grooming that initially happened when I first came home I just wanted to get on with my life I didn't want to be part of any program I was like right it's finished now yes I have my three years of license but I I just want to I'm far removed from Syria I've been in prison for three years it's at the back of my mind I've done all of this work with psychologists in prison I've done the rehabilitation program here I didn't know that it was going to continue outside and at first I I was like oh my god I I don't really want to do it I don't think I need to do it I don't I don't I just want to get on with my life but obviously you're subject to license conditions and you have to you have to comply with them now it's not mandatory for you to do these things it's optional that like obviously you can't be forced to take part in a program but you know I I spoke with the probation officer and he was like look I, I think it would be good for you I think just 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 see what happens so you know I would meet with a mentor every week and at first it, it was kind of like oh you know I don't want to really it was a hindrance really but as time went on and we would talk about oh my god loads of things I actually learned a lot from these mentors and it, it was it was good for me because I had a chance to I mean I had spoken about Syria a lot I had spoken about childhood marriage a lot with like three or three different psychologists in prison but being outside is different to being in prison there were new obstacles that I had faced outside that I didn't face when I was in prison because I was in prison. And I have a great support system, like through friends and family, 
but it was really helpful to have these mentors who are like they're strangers aren't they they're not in my circle I don't know them but it was really nice to have somebody to get me through these hard times because I think when you're in prison definitely me in your head you kind of have like okay that's my release date when I go home finished I can get on with my life but obviously with an offence like mine and I do understand it I'm not complaining at all there are a lot of rules that you have to follow there are a lot of monitoring put on you there's a lot of things that you can't do that you thought that you could do and whilst I understand it it was still hard for me it was really hard for me so having a mentor and being able to work with and there were lots of things that I learned like about Islam through the mentor and there were a lot of things that like the groomer had said to me that I had a chance to question about, you know, oh, I was told this and they, they would say, no, this is not true. And, you know, kind of re-educate. Um, so yeah, it, it was definitely useful. I didn't want to take part in the beginning, but I'm glad I did. And and yeah, it, it was beneficial. It was beneficial. Your story was obviously so public at, at the time this was going on, but it's still, you know, it's still public today. I know you, you've spoken out before on this. How difficult is it to build relationships with people now? And does that affect or has that affected your rehabilitation process in any way? Because it, it must be so difficult. I guess I guess you come up against people not trusting you or not believing you or not sympathizing with anything that you've been through in your story. In my personal life, no, people that I actually know. Um, I mean, I'll get onto that in a minute. I, I guess online, you know, people will make comments or, you know, I don't believe her, things like this. And I mean, look, not everybody is going to believe you. People have their opinions, but anybody can say whatever they want to say online or on the internet or wherever it may be. But people that I that I know in my personal life, nobody has ever like gone against me, judged me. And there are people, so when I came home, I, I was like, right, I've got my friends. I don't want to make any new friends. I'm not interested, but I have made quite a few new friends since I've been home you know it, it's not something that I start the conversation with obviously because it, like why would I what, like hi I'm Tarina Shkiel I went to prison for you know we don't start with our flaws but as I start to get closer to a person I'm like right I, I need to tell you something and then I you know I go into it and I tell them and you know not one of them not one person and you know quite a few of them are not Muslim as well they are of different faiths I always find that it's easier I always feel more comfortable if like explaining it to a Muslim person because they kind of understand it not they kind of understand like Islam and and so I expect the news to go down better with somebody who's Muslim but I have quite a few I've made friends and got quite a few friends with people who are not Muslim so I always feel really anxious about saying it to them but every single person has been like they have stood by me. They have shown nothing but love, support, and I'm truly thankful for that. Like, they would say, look, I know you. I know you for you. I know you for you. And they probably go away and Google it in their spare time. In fact, they do, and like, whatever. And they'll probably have a few questions about it, and I don't mind answering them questions, but nobody has gone away from me no one has gone against me and I think that's because they know me for me and the girl that I am I think the only place that I've ever really like had a problem is with like two times with jobs I think when uh, I did a documentary before the first one that came out um 
you know, I said, look, there's the documentary that's coming out and this is what's happened. I told them I had a criminal conviction before I went for the job. They didn't, they didn't ask me anymore about it. So I didn't tell them anymore about it. The head of the company came in there and they said, we're going to have to ask you to leave, but you've done an exceptional job. It's no detriment to you. You've been so amazing in your post, but you know, we can't continue because of other people that work there or whatever. I don't, I mean, I don't really care. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. No problem. And then there was a situation not long ago where it was at the start of this year, actually, where I must have been on BBC News. I was not aware of that. And one of the um, managers came over to me and, and he said, look, some, somebody said that they seen you on the news yesterday. And I was really caught off guard. I was like, oh, OK. And I wanted to go into it with him at that moment. But they were like, I didn't feel comfortable at that moment. We were like, everyone was around. And, and I said to him, look, I'll speak to you tomorrow. So I remember I, I told him everything and I was crying and he was like, look, you are a good girl. You're a good person. I, I know you so well. It doesn't change anything. But then it was kind of like things went further and there were other interviews that came out and then people started to become interested. And so we came to a mutual decision that I would leave that post. So, yeah, in terms of my personal life and people who I get to know, I've never had anything ne negative from new friends that I've made. And yeah. I was really anxious to make friends with new people. The people that I were friends with knew my story. They knew who I was and they would like stand by me. But the new people that I made friends with have really, I feel, I feel so blessed and lucky to have these people around me. I want to ask you how you feel. I'm sure you've been asked this before and, and it's been a, a topic of conversation for years, but I want to ask you how you feel about what is happening with Shamima Begum, because this is, this is a topic of conversation. Do we give her a second chance like yourself? Should she be allowed back in the UK? How do you feel about those conversations? Because that must that must hit home in a particular way for you as well, because a lot of these opinions, I guess, they, they sort of relate to your st story to a certain extent as well. Yeah, I mean, in terms of her like being groomed and her reasoning for going, I, I, I fully understand all of that. I understand, I understand the grooming process, everything. So I feel, you know, sorry for her and anybody that gets groomed because it's people choose you, they choose to groom you and you go on to do things that you would never normally do. No 15-year-old wakes up and decides, I'm going to go and put myself in the middle of a war-torn country. No single mother wakes up in the morning and says, right, I'm going to go and live amongst the most deadliest group that the world has ever and will ever probably see. Doesn't happen. The process is grooming. So, I, you know, I feel really sympathetic for her in that, in that instance. I guess that the issue that people have around Shamima, certainly because I have these conversations with my family and friends and because it's, it's a conversation point and obviously I'm always compared to her. So we have these conversations and... I guess that the thing that's different between us is the fact that, you know, I consider to the time that she spent there, I, I spent like eight weeks or seven weeks there. Like she spent years there. She's turned into a woman over there. She's developed psych psychologically over there and her environment, your environment affects your ability and how you develop. Now, as she developed, she developed in a war-torn country living around savages, evil people. So, you know, it's, it's not surprising when you ask her, heads in bins did it phase you now a young girl to sit there and look at the camera and say no it didn't phase me so with no expression no nothing like to me and yourself that that would literally you'd be horrified by that but she has lived in that situation for a lot of years so like I said the difference is I you know I escaped I, I, I took my chance I escaped 
a lot of people wanted to leave, but they were too scared to escape. I understand that. I get that. I respect that. But I think the biggest thing is the fact that, you know, kind of ISIS had been defeated and then it was like, I want to go home. Like nobody had heard from her for years. The media didn't hear from her for years. And then kind of when ISIS had been defeated and there was no more Islamic state, as it were, whatever you want to call it, you know, she kind of resurfaced and was like, I want to come home now. And I think that's that's why people ha are quite sceptical about it. And, you know, they don't believe her or whatever. In terms of her being allowed to come home, I can't say, no, don't let her come home. I, I cannot because I've been in the situation myself and that would be fake. That would be hypocritical. And I wouldn't be being true to myself if I said, don't let her come home. But at the same time, I don't know nothing about the level of threat that she poses to the UK. I don't know nothing about what she may have got up to while she was over there. So, and, and I don't know what her intentions are, should she be allowed to come home? So I wouldn't want to put myself out there and fiercely advocate for the return of somebody when I, I don't have this information. But having said that, I believe in rehabilitation. I believe in second chances. I believe in reintegration in all of these things. But these things are only possible if the person wants it. How do we know what people want? How do we know what people think? Well, you don't because we can't read minds. You only know what I'm thinking because I tell you. How do you know that that's the truth? There's no guarantees. So I really do understand people's fears, not just with Shamima, even with myself. I totally understand why people, some people may be scared of me or may think we don't believe her. We don't trust or we don't feel safe with her in England. I am no threat whatsoever, but I understand why people would think that. I really do. So, you know, it, 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 she finds herself in a really unfortunate situation. And it's it, it's such a shame that, you know, young girls were able to run away to such to such a place. And now there seems to be no way back for her. So, you know, I am sympathetic on, on, on that note. It, it, it really makes me thankful for myself to be in the position that I'm in, because I, I, you know, I read about it sometimes. I don't go out of my way to read about it, but sometimes it's on the news. And I always think to myself, oh, thank God that I'm in the situation that I am. Thank God, thank God I took, and I was terrified before I ran away, before I escaped, absolutely terrified. It's not the word. And I remember, and I always think to myself, I feel so blessed in that moment because yes, I've been through a lot. Yes, I've been to, to hell and back, because of my own because of my own acts but I'm in a good place in life I am quite happy in my life I've got I, I am happy I am happy after all these years I didn't think I'd be happy again but I am happy things are not perfect but I'm not chasing perfection because things are never perfect and I just I, I stop and I think oh my god thank god and I feel blessed in that moment when I look at other people's situations just based on your experience and you know, sort of being in that environment over over in Syria and then crossing the border to Turkey. What do you, what what is life like for Shamima now? Just day to day life for her. She will have nothing to occupy her time, besides the women that she's with. That's literally how you get through your days, and you build such strong bonds with the women that you live with because all you have is each other. I I can totally imagine how she feels because I was kept in detention because she's detained right now yeah. um, in a deportation center for six weeks and that drove me mad I couldn't do it I just want it's being in the limbo in Syria I knew what was happening I had hope I'm trying to escape but every day they would not come with news about when I'm going back to England and it, it absolutely drove me mad so for her to be in a situation where she's she doesn't know what's going on. I imagine it's a really difficult, tough time for her now. And I, I remember watching a program and I remember looking at her on the screen and thinking, 
I, I really don't know how you're coping through this time. But then again, she, I don't want to say she's out of touch with reality, but she hasn't come back to normality yet. I've been in normality for years. She's just gone from a war-torn country to being detained in the desert with other women that I imagine are still pro-ISIS and still radical. And, you know, the only reason that, that they are there, let's be honest, I'm not talking about Shamima, but a lot of the women who are there are literally just there because ISIS has been defeated. She says that she wants to forget about it, put it behind her. That will be really difficult for her at the moment because she's living with people who are pro-ISIS. And I imagine that she, she feels uncomfortable having these conversations with women because I remember when I was being detained, there were women that were there that were caught running away to Syria. I was the only one that was there coming back you know you get talking with women and the women would say like are you crazy to me you were there and you came back that's so mad that's so crazy and I would try to say look you haven't been there you don't know but you're literally fighting with a brick wall because these people are so gone yeah they're trying to tell me what life is like in Syria and I'm like look sister you don't know you haven't been there no I will so I imagine that she's up against them barriers as well but it's I guess her life's really difficult for her at the minute. She's in limbo. She doesn't know where she's going to go. And I guess she just passes her time with the people that she's around doing not a lot, to be honest. You're looking to raise awareness and you are raising so much awareness just by speaking to me today. I know you've spoken about this, your story before. And I think it's so important that you are the person that's raising awareness because you have been through this and you know how this starts from, you know, a, com a computer in your bedroom, sitting at home in the UK, ultimately to being housed across the border in Syria. It's, it's terrifying. And just hearing you speak, you are so relatable. And the way that you got into this is so relatable. We've all used social media. And I think until you are in the situation, Bear in mind, you were vulnerable at the time. You were vulnerable. You got out of an abusive relationship. You had a child. There were a lot of emotions going on and arguably you were susceptible to grooming at that time. I don't think anyone can judge you for the way that you you were wrapped up into this because this is your experience and it's so unique to you. So it's, it's great. It is really, really great. And I'm so happy to hear you are raising awareness. What would you say are some signs though, now that you've been through it for people to look out for that are going through it? And what are some signs for family and friends to look out for if they suspect that someone that they know is, is, is being groomed or being radicalized? So signs for family and friends, I would say the biggest one is isolation. People who are, be who are being groomed tend to isolate themselves from their family. There might be more arguments, there might be a lot more tension in the house that the person will have a lot will have a lot less patience and spend a lot of time on their own be it in their room wherever so I would definitely look out for isolation having said that just because someone spends a lot of time in the bedroom doesn't mean that that's happening but that is that is one of the key things and that is also what the groomer wants because the groomer wants you alone away from everybody so that they can tell you what they want you to believe because if you have close relationships with somebody you can be like oh mom, somebody said this. And you know, that's not what a groomer wants because then it, it's all over kind of thing. So I would definitely say isolation is something that's key to look for, it, particularly in young people. I would say when the individual starts paying interest in something that, that they've never really paid interest in before, 
if they start expressing views or it, it might be comments because the individual probably won't go to the parent and say, I believe in this. I've been speaking to, you know, that's not going to happen. But it may come across in conversation. You may hear them speak about things that is really untoward and it doesn't fit with your image of that person. That's definitely a big sign. So that they are like the two main things. And, you know, obviously for young people that are at school, you know, how are they getting on at school? Are they isolating themselves at school as well? That's also another big thing because, you know, isolating yourself at home. I, th I think we all go through them phases when we're a teenager where we just want to be in our room and left alone. But particularly if it happens at school or in places of work or whatever, absolutely. It, it, they are the two main things that I would say to look out for. And yourself, it, it's really hard when you're being groomed. And the yeah. reason it's so hard is because the groomers work so hard to form a bond with you, to form a relationship with you. You have never met them. You are never going to meet them. I never met the man that groomed me. I, you know, never happened. But I would say if you're speaking to somebody online that starts to push their opinions onto you, say things that you don't agree with, I would question that. Now you don't question it because it's the groomer doesn't start out with, oh, hi, hello, I'm an ISIS fighter, I believe in, no, it doesn't happen. They, they build the rapport first. They make you feel sorry for them. They make, you they make you feel like they're your friend. So that when they do start to introduce these ideas of whatever it may be, it might be neo-Nazi, Islamic, what, whatever, whatever it may be. So you're not likely to then go and say, mom I've been speaking or whoever I've been speaking to so, someone online and he said this and he said that because you've got that bond and you've got that friendship and you're already isolated from your family so it's kind of like he's my only friend he's the only person that understands me I definitely felt that about my groomer and I feel embarrassed to repeat that now as somebody who is in same mind and body I feel embarrassed to say that I see my groomer as a friend I really did I really thought that that was the only person that I could talk to that understood what I was going through. What is life like for you now? What are you excited about for the future? So um, I've recently opened my own organisation. It's called Help for Hope. Amazing. And it's it's in its infancy, really. I've literally just set it up. Like I got the approval uh, just a few weeks ago. The website's still under construction. But that is what I'm working to do. And it's literally what it says on the tin, Help for Hope. Due to my own experiences, I've broke it down three sections because it's a journey you've got the first stage which is grooming you've got then once the person's been groomed you need to be radicalized then comes rehabilitation and reintegration into society so I hope to raise awareness around grooming I want to educate parents I want to teach about online safety because we spend a lot of time online and unfortunately it, it's not a safe place de-radicalization that would entail working with people who've come home from who might still be in prison or you know on the way out of prison that have got terrorism convictions and we would work with them as mentors like we would in the rehabilitation stage um so yeah I broke it down into three pieces grooming then de-radicalization needs to take place then it's rehabilitation so it's hoped that in all aspects I can raise awareness, I can mentor, I'm qualified as a mentor, I can, you know, help people in all of these stages, because I've been through it, I know how difficult it is, I know exactly what the person's going through, I, I, I know, like, what you're going to come up against, and, you know, I'm in a pretty unique position where 
I've been through an awful lot. I've been through heartbreaking times, sad times, utter misery. And I'm not in that place anymore. And I'm not in that place because I wanted to make the change. I wanted to rehabilitate. So, you know, along the way, I've picked up skills. And if I can help somebody else who's struggling, if I can stop somebody from being groomed, because I find the grooming process absolutely like it's evil. But I have a lot of animosity towards, you know, people that groom people. So if we can raise awareness, if if I can stop somebody from being groomed, if I can speak out about my story... And that makes somebody think, if I can stop somebody else from going through what I've been through, if I can help somebody else that has been through what I've been through, if I can help pull somebody through the other side, you know, I've done my job and that's what I hope to do. That's what I'm excited about. And that's what the future looks like, hopefully. I'm so happy for you for that. And I wish you so much success and all the best in your future campaigns and in raising awareness for what is such an important topic to educate people about. And I couldn't think of someone better to do it than you yourself thank you so much that re- that that means a lot to me and hopefully i can go and do all the good work that i was made to do but thank you so much thank you and that concludes this episode of proverbs with daisy maskell that is me i hope you enjoyed it hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and i will see you soon Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.